Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just on four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six this evening. First up, Emeritus or Emerita Professor Caroline Karcher speaking about her latest publication, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. Australian Filipino activist Mary Gutsakis with an update on the situation in the Philippines. Brian Terrell, peace and anti-war activist on his recent activities in both Germany and in the US and the second part of the lecture at New South Wales Parliamentary Theatrette presented by Emeritus Professor Richard Falk. Future for Palestine, BDS, International Law and Beyond. But as usual, it's Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jan Lister, when thankfully the government is attempting to rein in the sort of worker lawlessness we talked about last week. Remember, well, does anyone think it worth remembering what was on the week that was? But last week we referred to the scores of criminal workers who face $42,000 fines each for raising a union flag on a Brisbane luxury apartment development. As heinous a crime as we can imagine. And thankfully the government is attempting to rein in this sort of worker lawlessness by introducing a sensible balance bill allowing them and caring employers to deregister evil unions and sack evil union bosses. Well, not just the government and caring employers. The bill allows almost anyone who has a beef with any union and or evil union boss to have the union deregistered and the evil union boss tossed onto the scrap heap. But to show how unions are not just unreasonable here, but let's be honest, they're unreasonable everywhere. That's why governments in some progressive countries ban them altogether and jail or even assassinate those forming or joining them, showing how serious they see the problem. This impediment to freedom of capital anyway, this mob called the International Centre for Trade Union Rights, based in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, interfering in our affairs, claims this bill breached international conventions on labour rights by restricting workers' freedom of association and collective bargaining, even when they're not involved in any wrongdoing. They even object to you and I, listener. Well, the bill says... A person with a sufficient interest. That could be anyone. A commendable example of real democracy giving us all a chance to apply to the court for a wide range of orders, including disqualifying a union officer, deregistering a union, altering its eligibility rules, restricting use of its funds or property, object to union amalgamations regardless of union members' wishes. All sensible measures to address this rampant lawlessness. Yet, this mob in London objects to those clauses, to those rights of people rightfully aggrieved at criminality. And it gets worse. They claim, how's this for paranoia? It is an invitation to union busters and anti-union forces. 
Well, of course, that's its intention. Are they opposed to fighting crime? Well, obviously, because they go on to say, the Ensuring Integrity Bill appears cynically designed to encourage deeply damaging interference in trade union activities. The legitimate the legislation spells a serious threat to trade union democracy. Ignoring the fact our government loves and upholds democracy. Why, as many as almost 30% of the people elected it, including many workers, particularly in Her Most Gracious Majesty's land up north, it now needs to disempower. And the international union mob exposed its class warfare politics of envy nonsense bias by claiming there is no equivalent for this in corporate law. But its unreliable credentials were quite properly and responsibly exposed by the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, which informed us it is a union-funded think tank. Unlike reliable sources like the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, which the Capitalist Review knows doesn't need to be described as a corporate-funded think tank, because there's nothing wrong or sinister with that. And good news, in a recent 13-page fundraising letter to members, the Institute boasted its Generation Liberty program, already employing 13 people as campus coordinators and aiming to have paid workers on every True Blue Aussie campus within three years and further plans to communicate directly with young people generally about freedom. See, many young people, it's Supremo John Rosno Com wrote, have a favourable opinion of socialism but never hear the benefits of capitalism and free markets, which is what they mean by freedom. And let's hope evil unions, until they're all deregistered, don't adopt the idea and plant paid workers in our universities, commie brainwashing. Although, oh no, we should be safe. I'm sure the Capitalist Review and the other foul facts, no longer foul facts outlets and Lord Rupert of Wapping would protect us by making sure we know what a socialist commie threat to democracy and education that would be. Whereas, there's no need to inform us about the Institute of Public Very, Very Private planting workers on every campus, Generation Liberty, because that's no sinister threat whatever. Educational progress. On that sensible balance smash the unions bill, see former train killer Jackie Lumpen says she'll vote to smash all unions and workers because there's one union official she doesn't like. Great little thinker Jackie. John Rosno and the Generation Liberty people would be proud of her awareness of what liberty and freedom mean. And a giant test for Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albinuzzi and the Socialists of their clever strategy of agreeing with the government 100% on everything just to highlight their cosmic differences. Isn't it interesting that the government and the media now tell us that every bill is a test for the socialists, which they fail if they do not agree with the government 100%, and thus far, to their credit, they haven't failed. Still, on this afternoon's theme, the government also continues its relentless campaign to get evil unions removed from all that workers' lovely, lovely super money. 
despite, despite setbacks like the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Finance Con mission backfiring and exposing the very funds the government wants to get their hands on all that lovely, lovely as the rip-off merchants. But their campaign was delivered ammunition by this report about the corporate watchdog punishing corporate misdemeanors like ripping off trillions by sitting down in their favourite club or restaurant and forcing the corporate lot to buy it a cognac and a feed of lobster. It listed the 10 top funds by returns and the 10 bottom funds by non-returns. And the evil union funds were prominent. Yes, in the top 10, only 9 were union funds. And in the bottom 10, only 9 were retail bank and financial institution funds. Any wonder the government knows it must ensure they get their hands on all that lovely, lovely and get the unions out of the way. And yet, there are myopic people who still claim the campaign is ideological. On non-ideological balance, I know we've just had our radio on and thanks to all contributors and hate to hit you again so soon, but it is urgent. Poor Barnacle's situation is dire, skipped, and two families to support. Every little bit helps. Please, donations to the Barnacle Family Support Fund, Care3CR. Also not ideological, our number one train killer, General Angus Cam Bulldust. He, he's the bloke who used to stand next to the Minister for Concentration Camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer, and nod wisely about how he was sending these no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people, many fleeing our train killers, back to where they came from. And when he did open his mouth... It was to tell us he couldn't tell us anything for security reasons. Anyway, Angus just may have had a conversion on the road to Damascus, or more likely Tehran, over climate change, which the government he served so subserviently knows doesn't even exist. Because Angus warned us we should do more because climate, because climate change, if there is such a thing, posed a threat to Tubluwazi. So, he's realised climate change is a threat to our survival, I hear. Well, no, no. No, Angus warns that as Pacific Islands are vacated by their populations as they become unlivable, then evil China might move in and occupy them, and True Blue Aussie should be prepared to confront this threat. We should support our Pacific neighbours. Although... Angus and his masters obviously haven't quite twigged that it's just possible we could support our Pacific neighbours much, much more by preventing them sinking in the first place. Hope you can solve a question which keeps baffling me. How come, whenever the super-efficient hand of the lean, mean private sector gets into some sort of trouble, it's the government's fault. It's got nothing to do with the super-efficient lean mean, like the cost of repairing the damage caused by privatising the building surveyor and building approval processes that used to be performed by the inefficient bloated hand of the public sector, resulting in the need for billions in compensation, which brings the inefficient bloated hand back into the equation, a 600 million of our hard-earned and probably expanding equation. How come the developers, the builders, 
the super-efficient private surveyors don't bear just a little bit of responsibility. But obviously not, because not only do they expect the public purse to foot the bill, they're also asking for government compensation for themselves as well. And a representative of that lot said, not only should the government sort out their insurance problems caused by their approval problems, but now the cat is out of the bag, so to speak, it would be impossible to renationalise the industry, let the inefficient bloated hand do what it did so inefficiently for eons without any of these problems occurring. That argument's about as reliable as their approvals. Anyway, finally, if anyone has the answer, let me know. Good afternoon. Well, I'm afraid you won't be able to let him know tomorrow morning because Mr Kevin Healy's having a week off from City Limits tomorrow. But never fear, he shall be back here on Tuesday home time. This time, next week. Today I'm speaking with the editor and also contributor to a newly published book, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. Carolyn L. Karcher, who is Professor Emeritus of English, American Studies and Women's Studies at Temple University and author of many books and articles about the struggle for racial and gender equality in the U.S., What the book contains are the stories of 40 Jewish activists sharing stories of personal transformation and renouncing Zionism. Carolyn, can I focus on your experiences growing up in a Jewish family? And it was actually in Japan. We had a very small synagogue in Tokyo, Japan, and there was no rabbi. So my understanding of Judaism was rituals performed in Hebrew and Israel. So I wasn't really taught to distinguish between Judaism and Zionism at all. I can't remember even being taught about the ethical principles at the heart of Judaism. We had a Sunday school class that was taught by an Israeli woman who probably was the wife of somebody in the Israeli embassy. And instead of reading the Torah, we read Leon Yoris's uh, Exodus. I think that tells you what I learned. So basically, Judaism and Zionism were indistinguishable in my mind growing up. I didn't know anybody who questioned Zionism. I knew very little about Judaism. Our synagogue, because it was small uh, and because we had to accommodate everybody, Uh, It was basically an Orthodox synagogue, but not separating men and women, because we had a few Orthodox members, and they were unwilling and unable to compromise. I had never heard of Reformed Judaism, and I didn't encounter it until I came to the U.S. I think probably many of the members would have considered themselves conservative Jews had they been in a place where that was available. But the synagogue was Orthodox. Uh, All of the services and prayers were in Hebrew with a facing text in English, but that's my answer. (laughs) How old were you when you went to the United States? I was 17. Uh, I was in Japan from age 5 until age 17, and I went to the U.S. to go to college. And how did you find the situation there in terms of dealing with Judaism and Zionism? To be honest, When I got to the university, which was um, Stanford, 
I didn't really want to go to to the campus Hillel. I was invited to it once, and I didn't feel all that comfortable there. My mother's relatives invited me to uh, their synagogue, which was in, I think, Oakland, California, and it was a Reformed synagogue. Everything was in English, and so that seemed very weird to me. So I never really, I never joined a synagogue after after getting to the U.S. I considered myself Jewish, of course. I never began questioning Israel or Zionism until 1982, which was long after I left college. But I, I had no Jewish life as, once I got to the U.S. How did you find out about Lebanon? I, of course, it was in the news, very much in the news in 1982. It just happened that my husband and I were in France during the invasion. Well, first of all, I should mention that my husband worked for the World Bank, and he had had a couple of World Bank missions to Lebanon, and he had loved Beirut and thought it was a beautiful city. So he was very upset, to say the least, by the um, the invasion. He had a personal connection there, which I didn't. So we followed the news uh, in France. Although I understand now that, in fact, the coverage of the news in the U.S. was much less censored than later wars would be, it was infinitely less censored in France. So both on French TV and in the French newspapers, we got a very detailed view of what the Israelis were doing. But we were in France for about uh, a month or five weeks, and I think that the Sabra and Shatila massacres occurred after I got back to the U.S. I'm not absolutely sure. And, of course, I did read about them wherever I was. After I got back to the U.S., I was walking down the street and saw an advertisement for a kitchen, and I decided that I would go to it. And um, there I really began learning for the first time. Uh, about Zionism at that kitchen. I'm wondering then, why did it take till 2019 for this book to be published? Were there other people who were feeling the same issue that you were coming into contact with? Until, I guess, past 2000, there must have been many people that I I had very little contact with them. Uh, Even some of my close friends were you know, not questioning anything that Israel did. Uh, As I said, my awakening occurred in 1982, and it occurred by listening to an Israeli speaker. I took her to be Palestinian because she was so passionate in her criticism of Israel. Uh, And then I discovered that she was a famous human rights lawyer named Aliyah Tzemel. And after that, I was able to begin listening to her. Although I was very shaken by everything I had learned, and I began reading and reading and reading in 1982. There was nobody I could talk to. I very soon discovered that when I tried to bring up these things to my friends, it was toxic. So I couldn't talk to them. There were very few people that I could talk to, in fact, almost nobody. I did attend demonstrations. There were demonstrations by uh, a Marxist group called International Answer, that I went to and I heard um, another uh, Israeli speaker, uh, Israel Shahak, who was a Holocaust survivor and who was also a very strong anti-Zionist speak. But 
uh, in my milieu. I simply didn't know other people who shared my views or who were questioning anything. Um, and then during this time, of course, I was just beginning my teaching career at uh, Temple University. I was quite overwhelmed with the amount of work I had to do as a teacher. I wouldn't have had a chance to be an activist and to be a teacher at the time. Uh, I did, um, I, I had one student who, I, it turned out, was also thinking along the same lines as I was, and we were able to have some conversations. And she later went to uh, Palestine and uh, taught at the French school in Ramallah, and I'm still very close to her today. But the people that I could talk to were very, there were almost none. That's one of the answers to your question, why did it take so long? Also, I'm a scholar, and uh, my field of scholarship was 19th century American literature and culture, and it was focused on race. So all my books were on that subject. Uh, I didn't really have the the mental space to to write a book on another subject until recently. It was really after joining Jewish Voice for Peace, and especially after our uh, local chapter was formed in 2010, that I was surrounded by people who thought like me. And also beginning to attend the national membership meetings of the National Jewish Voice for Peace organization, uh, there, of course, I met many people, and I began to hear people's stories uh, about how they changed and why they changed. And so eventually I, it seemed to me that it would make a good project to collect the stories of people that, whose stories I was hearing at these meetings or um, in my encounters in my chapter or with other people. And then I, I would, whenever I saw... Uh, a letter to the editor or an op-ed or I would follow up and try to get the person's story. But I, w I was working on the issues that had preoccupied me as a scholar until 2016. And it really wasn't until then, that until after finishing my last book on that subject, that I realized that I could, I could write something on this subject. Was there a price to pay for you and your friends for turning against Zionism? There was and is. The, the price differs according to where you are in your your life and, and your career. I mean, I am 74 years old and I'm retired from Temple, and so there isn't much of a price except, of course, to be um, harangued by the other side. Some, you know, one of these harangues uh, occurred just this week. The, the city of Tacoma Park, which is a suburb of Washington and is known to be extremely liberal, has been showing a series of controversial films, and they decided to show the film called The Occupation of the American Mind. When they did, the Jewish Community Relations Council, JCRC, uh, and a, a, a group of Zionists insisted that uh, that the film be canceled. They subjected the, the mayor and the um, Tacoma Park City Council to just a, a reign of abuse and of propaganda and of accusations of uh, and threats and so forth. So that's the kind of thing that occurs. I mean, of course, we, being now organized as a chapter, we defended the decision to show the film. We 
fought back against the JCRC, and ultimately the, the city did show the film, and um, they organized a panel discussion of it, and it all went very well. But th that's the kind of abuse that one can expect. Uh, however, you know, if, if I were, for instance, uh, a student and were either uh, in a, local, a student chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace or a student chapter of uh, Students for Justice in Palestine, I mean, there those students are really subjected to terrible threats. They can be uh, taken to court. They can be uh, suspended by the university. Um, not that they're doing anything that is at all threatening. I mean, all they're doing is advocating for the rights of Palestinians and using their right to free speech as American citizens. But the Zionist organizations really, they use all the tactics that they can and these students, there, there's an organization called Canary Mission. I don't know whether you've heard of it. They follow up. They put these uh, these students on their website, so that, and they send this information to anywhere a student is applying for um, a scholarship or a job or whatever. So uh, those students are, are much more vulnerable than anybody my age would ever be. Uh, of course, a beginning assistant professor who doesn't have tenure, I mean, People can be fired. You may have heard of the case of Norman Finkelstein, who was ultimately fired, or rather um, not, not given tenure when, when he came up for tenure because uh, he attacked the, the scholarship of the well-known Zionist uh, on very good grounds. And um, this person is teaching at Harvard, pulled his weight, wrote to the... Uh, the university uh, it was a different university somewhere in the Midwest, and and managed to get make it impossible both for Norman Finkelstein to get tenure or to in fact get hired anywhere else. So he's he's still kind of a freelancer now, and uh, it has been unhirable. The experiences that I and others like me have had are absolutely nothing compared to what these people have gone through. And they're still they're still going through it. We believe the tide is turning somewhat, but it's still extremely difficult. And you would be aware that this form of intimidation is happening all around the world to academics and journalists. Yes, yes. We were shocked to uh, learn that France, which had been very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, has now uh, outlawed BDS. These tactics are being practiced in France. And, of course, we've been following what's happening to Jeremy Corbyn and the, La the Labour Party in England with great interest and trepidation. Yes, it is happening uh, all over the world, and it is, it is shocking. And in my view, what it shows is simply that the other side doesn't really have an argument. Their tactic is character assassination, censorship, and attacks like, like this. I, have you heard of a film called The Lobby that was financed by Al Jazeera? They had two versions of it, an English version, that is to say about the lobby as it operates in the, the Israel lobby, as it operates in the U.K., and then they did another uh, version, the Israel lobby as it operates in the U.S. It was a much longer four-part version. 
they hired a young uh, Jewish uh, university graduate, British, uh, Tony in the film, I don't know what his real name is, to uh, go undercover, join um, these various pro-Israel organizations and work for them and secretly record what they were saying and doing. And so it's a four-part series. It was never able to be publicly aired because the Israelis threatened Qatar and ultimately the Qatar government, which of course funds uh, Al Jazeera, decided that it it couldn't take the the risks of going against the pressure of the Israeli government and the U.S. or worldwide Zionist lobby. But then uh, somebody managed to get a leaked version of it, which we've all seen. So the the point of this long detour was that in this film, the pro-Israel people can be heard saying, don't engage with the arguments. We counter the the message by um, attacking the messenger. And that's been their their tactic. My view is that the tactics of the Israeli government, the, the cruelty of the Israeli government, has just become so so blatant, so possible to ignore. And in the old days, before the Internet, they could exert pressure on news organizations and these things could be kept very quiet and you needed to do a lot of research to find out what was actually going on. Now, of course, it's very difficult for them to control the information. And, of course, the government has also become more and more more and more right-wing and more and more indifferent to, in fact, contemptuous of world opinion on this subject. So there is no way that they can really answer the kinds of arguments that people on the anti-Zionist and pro-Palestinian side, or even the liberal Zionist sympathizers with Palestinians, the anti-occupation people, they can't answer these arguments in any way that's in, at, at all convincing. So their their tactic is to, to try to prevent the arguments from being aired at all and to assassinate the characters or in, intimidate the people making the arguments. That's what they've been doing. In the U.S., is it becoming more of a generational issue with the older generation sticking their heels in and the younger generation much more educated are speaking out. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. Now, don't forget, I'm 74. (laughs) So our JDP chapter uh, includes um, a number of people of the older generation. In fact, our range is from uh, people in the ranging from 80 to their 20s. But definitely the younger generation, it's no longer so much the exception. What's very interesting is that the uh, the young people and many of the ones that I interviewed, in, or rather the, who wrote their narratives for my book, many of them went to Jewish day schools and had a Jewish education, which of course was not true for me and was not true for uh, many others in, in my generation. So in this Jewish education, although they learned nothing about the Israeli occupation and certainly nothing about the expulsion of the Palestinians in 1948 and so forth, they do learn Jewish values. Uh, They learn kind of social justice-oriented Judaism, 
Uh, they learn, you know, love your neighbor, love the stranger, pursue justice, and so forth. And then they go to the university where, for the first time, they are exposed to the facts that they were that were carefully concealed from them throughout their elementary and high school Jewish day school education, and they're horrified. Uh, they see immediately the contradiction between the values that they were taught and that they believe in very sincerely and the, the treatment of Palestinians. This is what is responsible for this generational shift. I think also people of my generation and older, the Holocaust is something that is so present for people. Although young people, of course, refer to it and talk about it, except for those whose families were murdered in the Holocaust, it's not as present. It doesn't uh, hover over everybody in the same way as it did over earlier generations. They, I mean, they are taught to be anti-racist. They're taught to uh, make common cause with people of color. That Jewish young people are, have been very active in protests against the horrible things that the U.S. government has been doing to immigrants, um, the, the uh, separation of families, the locking up of immigrants and immigrant children. They've been very involved in protests against mass incarceration. So it's much harder for them to not see the connection between their values on these things and what is being done to the Palestinians. They don't make the, the kind of compartmentalization that the older people make. You are listening to an interview with Carolyn L. Karcher, author and contributor to a new publication, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. When did you first experience the impact of Zionism on the Palestinians in their homeland? The first time was I was attending a Melville Society conference, as improbable as that sounds, in Jerusalem, and um, the uh, the focus of the of my earliest previous work was on Herman Melville, and Melville wrote uh, a long narrative poem about the Holy Land. One of the three organizers of this conference was Palestinian, and the other two were very much pro-Palestinian American scholars. Although the conference, of course, focused on Melville, we were taken to see other parts of the area, and we were we were also, to the extent that it was possible for them to get through checkpoints, there were Palestinian scholars who were participating in the conference. So that was my, my first actual contact. That would have been in 2009. After that, there's an organization here that's now called Eyewitness Palestine, and it was then called Interfaith Peace Builders that organizes several trips a year for people who want to see the situation on the ground with their own eyes. And we're taken for meetings with both Palestinians and Israelis, uh, mostly progressive Israelis, but also we did go to meet a secular leader, for instance, and we were taken to a settlement. A meeting was arranged with uh, some uh, ordinary Israeli university students. But that was our, our first real contact, the first opportunity to see situation uh, on the ground very closely 
uh, with our own eyes. We were taken to refugee camps. We, we met with people who, an organization called Defense for Children International, trying to defend the rights of children who uh, are picked up in raids in the middle of the night, interrogated and locked up, sometimes without charges for five months at a time. That was our first experience of doing that. And then, you know, once we had that experience, some of the people that we met uh, in Palestine uh, came to, for trips to the U.S., and uh, my husband and I um, had the opportunity to host them. We, we have a guest bedroom, so it makes it very easy for us to host people. And so um, we were able to host the leader of uh, the nonviolent uh, protest movement in Bilain, um the leader of Youth Against Settlements, another uh, protest organization in Hebron, a number of different Palestinians, and, um, of course, attend their presentations and speak to them informally while they were staying with us. So we've had more and more contact with people that way. I've, I have not been back since that trip. And to be honest, the trip was very difficult. Our Palestinian friends keep begging us to come back, but I always tell them we will come back when you are free. It's an emotionally draining experience, and I, I feel as though it accomplished what it was supposed to. It showed me what was going on, and I just don't particularly want to keep subjecting myself to, to the sight of this. I don't think I need it in order to continue to be effective in advocating for Palestinians. You've mentioned quite a number of pro-Palestinian organisations in the United States. Are they very small but growing? Strangely enough, Jewish Voice for Peace, it seems, is, is the largest of these organisations. And we actually do have a number of Palestinian members. There's also the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. There's Palestinian Christian Alliance for Peace. There are many, many organisations. Uh, they are small. Um, and much, and for the most part, smaller than Jewish Voice for Peace is, they are growing. JVP, for instance, experienced a huge spurt of growth after the 2014 uh, latest Israeli war on Gaza. They are growing, and one of the main uh, student organizations is this one called Students for Justice in Palestine, and it has uh, chapters on campuses all over the country. And it is definitely growing. Um, it has many, many Jewish student members as well as uh, Palestinian and black and Latino and white, other groups. I mean, simply students who find out, who hear about what's going on in Palestine and want to, want to fight for Palestinian rights. Of course, this is still a minority phenomenon, very much so, but... It's definitely growing, and, uh, and the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement is definitely growing, and I think that is why the repression is also growing, and the Israeli um, government uh, has allocated uh, an enormous amount of money to fighting all this. Just get back to your book, Caroline. A wide range of people, a, a wide range of experiences, a, a wide range of hopes for the future in a maybe a past Zionist future. Can you talk about maybe just a couple of the 30, the other 39 contributors to this book? Sure. Um, well, as you know, I start with a section called Rabbinic Voices. There are rabbis, few in number, but again, growing, who feel very strongly that the um, 
the Judaism that they preach and practice uh, should not be a Judaism of occupation and of oppression of another people. So I have the three first writers in the book are rabbis uh, writing about how they came to renounce Zionism and came to identify with the Palestinian cause. The, the next group of chapters uh, is transformative experiences in Israel-Palestine. There are two of the younger uh, people who uh, contributed chapters there, whose uh, chapters are wonderfully moving. One is a young woman named Tali Ruskin. She doesn't mention in, in her narrative, but, but I learned, in fact, that her parents are both rabbis. And uh, she starts off her narrative talking about the most idyllic year of her childhood when she spent the second grade year in Israel. And how uh, she went back year after year and that she identified so much with the Israelis that she was, uh, she was taken by, uh, by others for Israeli. And then, um, again, she had this same very progressive Jewish upbringing uh, that is progressive on everything else. Ultimately decided to take uh, a trip somewhat like the one that I, I had been on. And her eyes were opened. She came back uh, realizing that she would have to, she would have to start fighting for Palestinian rights. And she said that that, uh, knowing that, that she would have to do something was, was an easy decision to take. But the hard part, uh, was what to do about her relationship with her family and the Jewish community. And, um, the, at, at first, a, a sense of anger and betrayal. How could she have been brought up never being exposed to these facts, uh, never being told what, about the things that she had seen with her own eyes? How, how difficult it was, um, how long it took for her to, um, to heal from this anger and sense of betrayal, and that she understands very well why people in her community are so reluctant to face the facts, but she says, but we must do it, and we must get back to the basics of loving your neighbor and practicing the, the ethic of Judaism. That's one of the most moving of the narratives in the section, Transformative Experiences. The other very moving narrative in that section uh, was written by a young woman who was on the same trip as we were. Uh, again, she was kind of in transition as she took that trip. She certainly opposed the occupation. Um, she wanted to see the situation for herself with her own eyes, but she also was very attached to the idea of Israel as the Jewish homeland. She was totally shocked. Our, our very first day on that trip, we were visiting the refugee camp right outside of Bethlehem. There were these little boys who were celebrating the release of three prisoners who had just, as part of John Kerry's negotiations, had just been freed and who belonged to the, to the same uh, refugee camp. So they were celebrating by throwing stones in the, the direction of some Israeli soldiers who were so far away that they, they looked even smaller than the boys. The, the boys, to me, looked like they were about 10 years old. To, uh, to this young woman, looked like they were the same age as her son, who was 12. 
the soldiers swooped down on the boys and started firing tear gas canisters, and the tear gas overwhelmed most of the members of our delegation. My husband and I were actually already inside the building where we were supposed to be uh, having um, meeting uh, a member of the refugee camp and having a lecture. We didn't ourselves experience the tear gassing, but this young woman did. And, uh, and most of the, uh, the members of our delegation did. It was a very shocking experience, especially on the first day. Um, it seemed so disproportionate because the little boys throwing stones were much too far away to, uh, to come anywhere, for a stone to come anywhere near the soldiers. And it just, it, it really opened people's eyes to the disproportionate violence that the Israeli military, um, exerts. So she uh, talks about how she she cried all the way through the rest of the trip and that she realized in retrospect that she was grieving for her belief in Israel, just grieving for, for her beliefs. She ultimately joined uh, an organization that I don't know whether you've heard of called Code Pink. It's, it's a women's anti-war organization. It's very active. She's an amazing young woman. She's very brave. She's been arrested numerous times. But anyway, so her narrative uh, really does talk about this trajectory from that day to her becoming a very active advocate of Palestinian rights, was traveling uh, to Palestine um, uh, every year, until now she's not allowed in by the Israelis anymore. So that was another very, very moving narrative in the transformative experiences section. The section Campus Voices, I have uh, nine uh, narratives by the young people who are so active in the, the movement of young Jews that you referred to. What's very interesting is a narrative by a young woman who got to the issue of Palestine via her work on environmentalism. She talks about how in, in high school the environment became her issue. She devoted herself to composting, and she was nicknamed the compost queen. And when she got to the university, she realized that composting was not a very effective tactic, although it should still be practiced. She got involved in the fossil fuels divestment campaign. And as she was involved in the fossil fuels divestment campaign, students who were involved in the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement asked about, what about divestment from Israel? She kind of stuttered and didn't know what to say, sort of came out with the, the talking points that you get in the Jewish milieu, and she could hear herself saying them and realized that she wasn't very convinced by what she was saying. And so she went through um, a couple of experiences like this and finally realized that she didn't have any very good argument for why you could divest from fossil fuels, but you couldn't divest from the Israeli occupation. Eventually what happened was that the students of this particular university, those who were in the fossil fuels divestment campaign and the um, boycott divestment and sanctions movement and the movement to divest from, from the prison system all joined together. And it was the first university at which the three groups made common cause with each other, which is happening more and more on college campuses now. Her awakening took place 
by simply uh, learning to extend the kinds of arguments that made perfect sense to her for environmentalism and the struggle against the, uh, the corporations who were poisoning the environment to extend the, the, the logic of this to fighting against the Israeli occupation. Finally, Carolyn, who did you put this book together for? Well, I had two audiences in mind. My main audience was uh, the group that we call PEPs, Jews who are progressive except on Palestine. I hoped to put together a book that could be used to start difficult conversations with people like this. Um, most of us have friends and family members who fall into this category with whom it's very difficult to, to start conversations about Israel and Palestine and the occupation and Zionism. I thought that a, a book that you could give to your friends and family members and perhaps get them to start reading for them to see how many people, all Jews, who um, had similar values with theirs, how many people were able to take this path to its logical conclusion. I was hoping that that, that would influence them. The other audience was, of course, in the Palestine Solidarity Movement. We work very closely with Christians and, uh, of course, also Muslims. The Christians especially, uh, all of them have Jewish friends. They're very much afraid of being accused of anti-Semitism, very afraid of, they don't want to associate themselves in any way with anything anti-Semitic, of course. I, I felt that a book like this could be very liberating for them and could help them feel more confident uh, and less worried and self-conscious and could also provide a way for them to talk to the Jewish friends with whom they cannot have these frank conversations, try to show them that the reason they're fighting for Palestinian rights is not that they're anti-Semitic, not that they're anti-Jewish, and that many, many Jews, in fact, feel this, this way too. So those were my two target audiences. What's the feedback been like? So far in my book talks, the feedback has been very, very positive. On the one hand, however, it's very difficult to break into the, the mainstream media. I can't say that I've done it yet. That, of course, you know, is a reflection of a degree of censorship that the that Zionist organizations and just generally the, the, the whole sort of unconscious pressure have been able to exert. At these book talks, we're always shadowed by a horrible man who works for an organization called Jihad Watch and who always follows the, the playbook of asking some sort of question that has nothing to do with the arguments that we're making but is to discredit the messenger. But so far, he's been pretty much alone. On the other hand, I mean, people have asked these soul-searching questions about, you know, well, I have friends in Israel. I don't want to give up. Um, what do I do? It's been a great way of starting this kind of conversation. I think in that way, the feedback has been good. I've gotten five very positive reviews so far on Amazon. I, I got... Uh, a wonderful review by a rabbi who does belong to Jewish Voice for Peace, but it is um, a very, uh, it's a wonderful review. I've had another 
very good review, Mondo Weiss. So I, I had a very good review by a long-standing anti-Zionist activist, Imanda Weiss. I had a review by somebody who boasted about not having read the book. He said he was able to read Mein Kampf, but not my book. Uh, it was basically an attack, um, not so much on the book itself, I mean, how could he, if he didn't read it, but on uh, the, the so-called the social justice Judaism, which he just uh, tried to tear to shreds. So that's been um, the reaction so far. But it seems to be selling quite well. Many, many, many people have thanked me for writing it and, and said what a difference it made for them to see a book like this. Thank you, Caroline, for talking with me today. Thank you very much. And that was Carolyn Karcher, Professor Emerita of English, American Studies and Women's Studies at Temple University and the author of many books and articles about the struggle for racial and gender equality in the US. And the book is Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation and it's brought out by Olive Branch Press. And it's now nine minutes to five. This this coming up very, very soon. You might still have time to take a caravan up with you and find somewhere to sleep under the tree for this conference. It will be worth the effort to get to Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the Crossroads. Time for an independent foreign policy. Held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australia military exercises for war on China, discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia, the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Not really sure that you get up to Darwin with a car and a caravan in such a short time, but I'm quite sure there are plenty of flights out of Melbourne. I'm speaking now with May Kotsakis, who is a Melbourne-based Filipino-Australian citizen, who works tirelessly to improve the situation for her fellow Filipinos in the Philippines. May, I have a number of areas for you to talk about, but the first one is something that I've discussed with some of your fellow activists, Peter Murphy and Kevin Bracken, but I'd like you to give your impressions as a Filipina of the recent human rights meetings in Hong Kong. It was uh, very inspiring and it really raised our morals. Especially there were plenty of delegates from other countries. And that conference is specifically for the Philippines. And there were 130, 140 delegates and about a third of it are from other countries or even a half. Although some of those from other countries are also Filipinos. But there were, you know, other nationalities who attended and were very supportive. So we really find it very inspiring. We learned a lot as well because it is not just about the killings that was discussed there. Every issue that has something to do with the violation of the rights of the people 
There were several uh, workshops to discuss on various issues. It includes the education and culture, includes mining and environment, the uh, attacks on labor and workers. And those workshops have put forward various resolutions. But one of the main resolutions is formation of a global coordinated campaigns. One that you can see now is uh, Kevin actually uh, is a member of the coordinating body for the campaign on mining and environment. And as part of that, we have continued our protest or campaign against the Oceana Gold. So we have continued that as a support to the campaigns of the people of the the uh, area where the Oceana Gold is operating because they are campaigning to stop the operation of Oceana Gold since their license to operate or the FPAA has already been terminated or it's already the term is already ended in June 20. So that is one of the results of that. So a coordinated, global coordinated campaign and helping each other for all those issues that was discussed in the conference. Just to go back to Oceana Gold, there has been a development until now, uh, because the, as I said, uh, the uh, financial and technical assistance agreement, which is that is the license that was given to Oceana Gold to operate, has already expired on June 20. But Oceana Gold wanted to continue the operation, even though the governor of the area, the uh, Nueva Vizcaya, has already ordered Oceana Gold to terminate production. So what the people did until now is they are holding a barricade, barricade on the entry to the, you know, to the mine so that no trucks or no any deliveries, nobody can come in and out of the Oceana Gold. They are maintaining that the people, including the governor, the mayor, including the officers or the officials, the um, local officials, are actually... Uh, cooperating and helping the people to oppose that operation. So there are various events as well or supporting activities happening in other parts of the world where there are like Filipinos and supporters like here in U.S., in Canada, and even in Latin America because there were many Latin American delegations there at the conference. Now, what the Oceana Gold is doing probably will be lobbying the government because it was actually the government, you know, the national government, the Philippine government who has issued that FPAA to Oceana Gold. But until now, because they are lobbying the government, but the government see the opposition of the people which is getting very, very strong. Of course, because their li- livelihood were destroyed and the violation of uh, human rights there is rampant, like especially when the Oceana Gold was just starting construction, they uh, forcefully displaced a lot of people there and majority of the people living in that area are indigenous Filipinos. The people started it and they they see that uh, even the tax, apparently, that Oceana Gold is supposed to pay a local tax uh, sort of fee, apparently it's not being, you know, done on a regular basis and done the, the amount. So the promise of jobs for the residents is actually not true because with the, the project of the mining, which is an open pit, there is not much work. And the livelihood of the people living there were actually destroyed because of massive 
poisoning of the land and the water and the displacement of many residents there. So they actually lost their means of living. The big river there is already poisoned. So they already, they noticed as early as 2013 when Oceana Gold started um, you know, mining, they already noticed that the fish were declining, being poisoned. It's very destructive, not only for the livelihood of the people, but also for the environment of, you know, of that whole um, area. Also, there were already two, you know, at the, at the start of the operation of Ashanagul, two campaigners who were um, killed, you know, by identified assailants. That's, that's why the people continue to oppose it. Are activists also concerned about other Australian companies working in the Philippines? Yes, actually when we didn't even know here in Australia, we didn't even know that there were other mining operations there, even BHP. BHP is one uh, of the major, they don't do the actual operation, but they were the buyer of the product of one mining company there. Uh, There were, I think, five Australian companies, uh, mining companies operating in the Philippines. There were others uh, that is under a different name, but if, you know, if investigated, the uh, shares, majority of the controlling shares are Australian, especially in the South, because the Philippines is very rich in gold, copper, and other minerals. So they're actually, you know, there are several Australian companies that, that are exploiting those. The main concentration of people in the last couple of years is the the number of people who have been killed in the so-called war for drugs, war on drugs, but actually the war on the poor. I think it's something like 30,000, 40,000 people. And yet, as we see from activists, people are still, in many areas, game to go out in the streets and protest about what's happening to them. Yes, you probably have heard about the protest during the sauna the State of the Nation address of the President. That would be the third State of the Nation address since uh, he uh, became President. The protests were not only done in the capital city or in Maine, in Manila, but the protests in different parts of the Philippines in spite of the repression. Even in Mindanao, when it is still under martial law, people really protested, you know, there are two main issues that they were actually protesting about is Duterte's uh, disposition on the West Philippine Sea or his position on that, being away the Philippine sovereignty, and also the continuous killing not only on the war on drugs, but actually extrajudicial killings of any opposition of Duterte, including uh, lawyers, journalists, uh, human rights advocates. So. There are now almost 300 since Duterte, almost 300 kids that are opposition, not not on the war on drugs. This is a separate one, the farmers or uh, community leaders. I think there were already three or four lawyers that are people's lawyers that have been killed. Human rights advocates are being harassed, including including foreigners. Like there are at the moment four. Australians who are blacklisted cannot enter the Philippines because they joined the fact-finding mission to find out what really happened in Marawi and also because they attended a conference in the Philippines. So we have four Australians who cannot enter the Philippines. It's not only Filipinos that are being harassed and being maligned, including 
other nationalities, including members of the United Nations Human Rights Council. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's very sad. Is it known what the situation in Malawi is at the moment? That was actually one of the highlights of those protesting the residents of Marawi because they were displaced and at the moment they are in camps in, you know, in some camps. In Some of them are in Manila, some are in Mindanao. So they wanted to go home. They said that uh, what they want to do at the moment is just to go back to their home and to their land. There was no reason when when actually the fact-finding mission went to Marawi, they said that there was no reason for the Philippine government to destroy it, destroy the whole city. And uh, but uh, that's what happened. Just like what is being done, like what happened in, you know, it, it's like a, a a sort of standard procedures when a certain uh, fascist government or any government wanted to change. The made of the of the area, like what happened to Iraq, to Libya, destroyed the whole city. Then the, the people are saying that they are not even saying that there were really some a big ISIS group there, you know. So the destructions of the bombardment of the city with the aid of Australian military and Australian support was really not necessary. So at the moment, they cannot go back yet. They are still stuck in the area where they are being housed. Can you talk for a couple of minutes about the support groups here in Australia for the people in the Philippines? Several, many individuals here that uh, that support the Philippine, you know, the, our struggle in the Philippines. And we have also the Philippines Australian Solidarity Group, which is a solidarity formation of Filipinos and non-Filipinos that continuously campaign and lobby or advocate for Filipinos, especially those that are victims or survivors of human rights violations. So in PASA, we have a regular meeting, which is every first Friday of the month, and we discuss the issues there. We organize some forums or public meetings, and we discuss issues not only in the Philippines, but even also issue here in Australia. But because of the situation in the Philippines, which is really, you can say, the very dire. Not only, not only because the current government is fascist, is you know he has no regards of the rights of the people. He has a very filthy mouth. He, the, how he treats women, you know. So, so the, the situation in the Philippines is very dire. So, majority of our efforts and our campaigns are directed to the Philippine issues at the moment. So. That is continuous. Um, since the PASA or Philippines Australian Solidarity Association was formed in 2001, 2003, sorry, we continuously do that. Now there are others, so like the support for the campaign against the Oceana Gold mining operation. So there are individuals and some are groups that also support that. So aside from attending or participating in protests. They send document, I mean, statements and solidarity messages, uh, which is very important to Filipinos because just knowing, especially those that are in the firing lines there in the Philippines, knowing that there are people from in other countries, especially those non-Filipinos, knowing that they are supporting the struggle is very important to them because you 
I mean, we have already experiences or we have already sort of knowledge of what's happening in other countries when they are, you know, fighting for their independence, for their for democracy. Just like in even in in Syria, in Cuba, then the powerful countries like the U.S. will have blockade or embargo. So the support of foreign, you know, foreigner or the support of people in other countries will help, you know, uh, lobby, campaign towards their governments to, to like, lift the embargo. M- many, many, uh, there are many things that um, people in other countries can support the struggle of Filipinos. So we are really very thankful of that, and we sort of uh, gather more support. May, do you have memories of the Marcos era to compare what's happening today to what happened then? Well, many, many people, especially the Philippines, said that what is happening today is much, much worse than what is what happened under Marcos. Because the, the number of the killings that, uh, you know, under Marcos 20 years, <laughs> now a... It's already, I think it's already surpassed by Duterte in three years. And, and Duterte isn't hiding it. He actually say, kill, you know, kill them, you know. He sort of give a, like a blanket order to his military and his police to, to kill people if they oppose or, you know. And the, the worst that is, one of the worst that's happening now is the red tagging the um, accusing of false, you know, making false accusations, trump up charges. There are many political prisoners that are in prison because of trump up charges. You know, they are accused of killing someone that more than 20 years ago, something like that. And it's just false accusations. They are being tagged as a member of the New People's Army. And therefore, they would, uh, Duterte would say that... He or she is a member of New People's Army, so you can kill them. Even priests, even members of the religious the churches, one bishop in Mindanao, there is a very big writing at the front, at the wall of the, you know, of the church that said that the bishop here, and he was actually named, is a member of the New People's Army. So that means that when they are tagged like that, that they are subject to harassment, illegal arrest, or killing. Because the, there is a continued fight or war between, you know, there is a continuous revolution in the Philippines. You'd encourage people to attend the demonstration on the 9th of August in the city? Oh, yes. Thank you for mentioning that, Jan. Yes, yeah, we do. And then on August 9 at 12.30 in front of the Oceana Gold office, I think it's 357 Collins Street. We have a protest there, so if people can come and join us, that would be good. And also, we have a forum on September 6 at 6.30 at the Trade Hall Council. The forum is about the erosion of people's rights in the Philippines, in Australia, and in other parts of the world. And we have two speakers, Senator Janet Rice and also Sister Pat. So mark your calendar for those two important events, and we would love you to come and join us. Thank you, May. Thank you, John. And that was, and still is, May Kotsakis.
giving us an update on the situation in the Philippines and some directions where you can support the actions of people like May to support the people in the Philippines. It's now 10 minutes past five and this is Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Veteran peace activist Brian Terrell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence has been involved in campaigns and actions for many years in many different places. But this month he managed to be active in two continents, Europe and North America. It began in Germany, where peace activists from many countries gathered to protest at the Bruxelles Air Base. I asked Brian first to describe where Bruxelles is. Okay, it's not far from the border with Luxembourg. It's in the very far west of, of Germany in the uh, Eiffel region near the Moselle Valley. It's uh, quite beautiful and, and uh, pretty remote. It's, it's uh, farms and small villages. And how long has the U.S. been in there? Oh, since the end of World War II. There is a NATO relationship uh, agreement um, there are, I don't know how many soldiers are in it, but there's a squadron of U.S. airmen at, uh, at Bushell who are responsible for keeping track of and, and keeping ready, we believe it's 20 B-61 nuclear bombs. And the strange thing, this is a very, there are no American planes there. If these bombs are ever to be used, they will be loaded onto German fighter bombers by U.S. personnel, and they will be delivered then and then dropped by the Luftwaffe, by the German Air Force. And this goes against, of course, international law in, in, many, in many, many ways. And, and also against German law. After World War II, their constitution says that they will have only a defensive force. And the idea that you have... Uh, the uh, German military that may be raining down nuclear destruction on cities around the world, perhaps Russia. Uh, you know, it's very frightening, and the, the people of Germany are pretty much in agreement on all sides, right and left, that uh, they don't want to be a country that has nuclear bombs. Now, these nuclear bombs, have they been there all along, or is it something new? They've been there all along, as far as we know, and... It's all an open secret. While we were there the day before I left, it broke in the media that somebody from the uh, Canadian NATO, somebody from Canada, the NATO committee, uh, Canadian senator for defense and security committee of the NATO parliamentary assembly, accidentally leaked the fact that there, you know, the fact that there are bombs there at Bruxelles, also at bases in Belgium, Italy, the Netherlands, Turkey, but. It is an open, you know, it's it's a secret, supposedly, but a very open one. And we had uh, many 
meetings with with uh, the security forces at Buchel, the, the German Air Force security, military security, and the the police, and uh, everybody there that we talked to admits that there are nuclear weapons there. But one thing I should say is that you know, my first visit to Germany was in 1983 when the Pershing missiles, low-range nuclear missiles, were being deployed, and uh, the Soviets responded to their SS-20s on the east side of Germany. And there were huge demonstrations, uh, millions of people on the street. It was quite exciting to be there, and those Pershing and SS-20 missiles are all gone. At the time, in 1983, there were more than 7,000 nuclear bombs based in Germany, both from the United States and the Soviet Union. And today, we're pretty sure it's only these 20. Now, each one of these 20 is many times more powerful than the, the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. But 20 is not, it's not uh, 7,000. So we have seen, you know, it, it gives me hope that progress is possible, that, that uh, disarmament can happen, although the, the other headlines these days make that hope even more elusive. How close to the base did you get? Oh, um, that's a fascinating thing. The, the, uh, this is the third year that there's been, well, there are many years of, I think more than 20 years of demonstrations there, but this is the third year that there's been, uh, in July, uh, an international encampment. The, uh, you know, they put in new fencing and are promising to put in more. In previous years, people did get on the base, and, and the uh, police and the military said it's now impossible, but it's not. We had several entries into the base, all short-lived, but then they know that we're there. There was, there was tremendous police presence and surveillance, that they were uh, stopping and searching cars and trying to get identities on people. But on several occasions, you know, we did, with the use of, of bolt cutters, get through the fence and get get into the base for a little while before we were apprehended. And this is the, the uh, there's a myth of security around nuclear weapons, and no one's secure around them as long as they exist. I did one discussion I had with a uh, military policeman. I had cut a fence and gone in with two friends, another American and a woman from Netherlands, and... This uh, military policeman was, he, we already had run-ins with him, and he's very frustrated with us. And he, he said, you, you, you come here and you violate German law and you destroy our property and you cut a hole in our fence. And I pointed to over where the, where the, the bunkers, where the military, get you, where the, the U.S. military has the, the nuclear weapons, and I said, you know, I, I questioned his priorities. So I said, my government has violated German law by putting those those nuclear weapons here on German soil where they don't belong. And I said, you're going on and on about a fence, but this fence is a very small thing because if those weapons are ever used, they're going to destroy so much more that you know the destruction will be be uncountable. And so don't don't be complaining about a fence. There's, there's more serious things to. to for us to be concerned with, and if you are supposed to be enforcing the law, you have some very big responsibilities. And he said, I'm just doing my job, and I said, your job is <laughs> the same as my job. We have to stop the nuclear arms race. You know, that's, so that's the responsibility of every, of every person, you know, especially a member of the German army. Uh, and me as an American citizen, I said, we have this obligation together. 
he retreated into the uh, uh, the old trope that, uh, especially hearing it on in Germany, by a man in the Wehrmacht uniform saying, "I'm following orders." It's a uh, chilling. You know, people following orders is, is what's <laughs> you know imperiling the, the 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 planet, and we have to get beyond that. What does apprehended mean? At a German base, I know what happens to you if you do it in the U.S. Not so serious. I was apprehended three times. One time just carried out of the base and dumped outside. And another time given a 24-hour stay-away order. They took my uh, identification, my passport number and everything and wrote me out a letter saying I had to stay out of the base or half a kilometer around it for 24 hours. Some of my friends uh, violated that order and went back, and they were in jail for 24 hours. There were eight of us who were jailed, just put in a police station holding cells until the next morning for violating that. And in the United States, you usually get, you know, I, I've gotten, gone into several bases and have served as much as six months in prison for actions such as this. And especially about destroying the property in the United States, is, there's a, uh, I think, a fetish about property, and anyone who cuts a hole in a fence usually is going to be facing felony charges and even some years in prison. But, but, but in, in Germany, they, they, I guess they take it for granted. Their, their fences are going to get cut. So I had a, when I cut through the fence, I got another stay-away order for another 24 hours, and I got a letter from the police saying that they were considering pressing charges, prosecuting, and that I would hear from them if they decide to do that. But the experience of other people are that uh, they have prosecuted some German citizens, but they have not prosecuted foreigners thus far. So, And those who have been prosecuted have been given fines, and a few people have refused to pay those fines and have spent, like I believe, 10 days in jail. The personal consequences of resisting in Germany in the same kind of actions they are in the United States are quite different. But I'd like to more focus on the consequences to the planet. If we keep going the direction we're going, uh, I was asked by one journalist if I was scared going into the base, and I said yes, but I'm scared most of the time. <laughs> and it, it, it's actually, uh, you know, facing those fears and putting... Um, you know, my body and mind in, in motion, in, in, in confronting, the, you know, the, what I fear. And what I fear is is the destruction of this beautiful planet. I really saw that, that the countryside around Bouchelle is just so fantastically beautiful. And not far from, from there, oh, just a few minutes away, is, is the Moselle Valley and vineyards that have been going since Roman times. Wonderful white wine, and uh, it's a beautiful planet and worth uh, any risk that, that we might entail to to preserve it, to, to save it, and to save it for another generation, for our children's children. How many activists were there at the camp, and from what countries? Okay, well, this was a part of a, um, 20 days of activity, and we had our uh, international camp. Yeah, I arrived... Let's say I believe on the on the seventh, but where the international camp was the eighth to the seventeenth. But there were other groups there, and we had uh, there were eleven of us in the United States, and there was quite a contingent from the Netherlands, 
and from the United Kingdom. And then there was a few days when the uh, uh, Communist Party of Germany came for several days and did a, did a blockade and had some of their own program and shared a lot with us. And uh, for part of our visit, there was a youth camp, international youth work camp that were go- going to various sites. And they were, uh, there was a young woman from Kazakhstan and several from Spain and uh, at least one person from Mexico, you know, people from Belgium, Luxembourg. And on the Sunday, actually I arrived on the 5th, on Friday, on the Sunday, the 7th, was a day that the churches were involved, and there were more than a 1,000 people on that day. You know, from all over Germany, churches sent busloads. You know, other organizations involved are the Physicians for Social Responsibility and ICANN, the what, International Coalition Against Nuclear Weapons, were big co-sponsors. So it was... Uh, just a whole lot of people, a whole lot of activities, and a very good, joyful spirit that, uh, uh, without ever forgetting the seriousness of what we were about. Explain what happened on the 10th, the day of the International Treaty Enforcement Order. Yes, that was um, on the morning of the 10th. There were, I think there were 11 of us who entered. You know, we, we prepared an order of... Uh, calling for for them to, to, to cease and desist. And it seems a very uh, curious thing for kind of a lot of gumption for billions to do. But on the other hand, we have you know, to go and tell the German military and the United States squadron there to stop what they're doing, and, 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 and very seriously as an order, that this, this is a cease and desist order. But... Under international law, we all have obligations, and and when, um, and especially thinking of us being there in Germany, the international tribunal at Nuremberg after the war was very, very clear that those German citizens who knew what was going on, who knew about the crimes against humanity and the crimes of war being committed, who did not try to stop them, were actually in violation of the law. There is a positive duty. It isn't just that your international law about this is not just about what you can't do. It's it's what you have to do, what we're we're obligated to do. So yeah, we yeah the the uh I'll read just a little bit of it, I just brought it up. Uh, we act in accordance with common humanitarian law, treaties governing the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons and the authoritative opinion of the International Court of Justice which says the court recognizes that the use of nuclear weapons could constitute a catastrophe for the environment. The court also recognizes that the environment is not an abstraction, but represents the living space, the quality of life, and very healthy human beings, including generations unborn. The destructive power of nuclear weapons cannot be contained in either space or time. They have the potential to destroy all civilization and the entire ecosystem of the planet. For these reasons, guided by our conscience, the legal authority of the International Court of Justice and the imperative to act residing in each person recognized by the Nuremberg Principles, we call upon the personnel, the powers, and the authorities at Bushell Air Base to take all steps that are necessary to immediately stand down the U.S. B-61 nuclear weapons deployed there and demand the permanent removal from sovereign soil of these weapons of mass destruction. Uh, of course, they uh, they didn't stand down, but 
I think we have an obligation if we see a crime being committed to speak up, <laughs> even if even when we don't expect to be heard. We, that does not make the uh, doesn't lessen the ob- obligation that we have. You actually got into the base to give this to the commander, is that right? Yes, and we kind of rushed because there were so many of us. You know, see, on, on an ordinary day, this is like, this is like many bases here in the United States that have nuclear weapons. They know that we're there, and they know we're protesters, and they're very, very vigilant. On a normal day, just as in most bases in the United States, we could have just walked in. And if they asked us what we wanted, and we said we wanted to talk to the commander, we might have even have gotten directions to the headquarters. But because of the, uh, the protest, their security was very, very high. But we did uh, just on foot, and we were nonviolent, and we didn't push at anybody. But we evaded and, you know, distracted and got <laughs> weaved around, and, and uh, we got quite far into, into the base. And then when we talked to the, uh, the soldiers who apprehended us, we gave them copies of, the, uh, of our order, and we, you know, pled with them to, to let us through and even to join us. They did not. <laughs> but but uh, I, I hope we got the message across in ways that... Uh, uh, I think simply writing a letter probably would not have. And what were the events of the days following before you left? There were several occasions where people cut through the fence. There were, the day after the church day, that would have been on the 8th, there were um, people from the Physicians for Social Responsibility and other organizations that sat down in the uh, their, uh, three main public gates into the into the base, and we had them all blocked. We did that, and they removed people from one of the ba- one of the gates. Uh, no one was taken to custody, but they did dragged people away and then put a cordon of police keeping people from the uh, from getting in. And then we did. And the Communist Party had their gathering there. They they did the same, and we joined in with them. There were also in the evening, you know, concerts with some pretty well known European bands who wanted to be be helpful, and. There, you know, it's a very rural place, and the police put up roadblocks and all kinds of, you know, parking restrictions and things that made it very, very difficult. So we, we listened to some very, very good bands uh, with a very small number of people. We, you know, we cooked for each other and we sang songs, and some people made a puppet show, and we, you know, you know, building community. It's all very important. You mentioned a journalist before. Were there more than one? Actually, there was very good local local media, and I think that's part of what of what we wanted to do is is to bring these issues, you know, to the local people. That uh, just as just as here in the United States, around these bases, is the people who uh, live around the air base at Bushell, Many of them have had no idea what goes on there. As neighbors, they're very implicated and very in danger because, of course, this is the only site in Germany where nuclear weapons are being 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 kept, and only one of, I think, seven in all of Europe in a conflict with another nuclear-powered country. You know, Bouchelle would be a target, and people should know that. People should be aware. And many of the, you know, many Germans when they find out about this, are shocked because they think, you know, the Cold War has been over. 
these weapons, they've never been justified, but they were, you know, the justification offered before was the threat of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union has been gone for a long time. People are often surprised to find out that there are still nuclear weapons there, just I think, as, I think a lot of the Americans are surprised to find out the extent of the U.S. nuclear arsenal and uh, just helping people become more aware. I was just wondering, speaking to the people there, how aware they are of the, the nuclear weapons treaty ban. Are people yes, aware? Yes, that's the... Yes, and, uh, and uh, ICANN, the, the organization that got the Nobel Peace Prize for uh, its work on that ban, was one of the main organizers and sponsors of, of, of these events. So, um, yeah, I think there, there's a, a dearth of knowledge, and we need to get that out. It's, it's also very, it's, this is an important time because this actually started under President Obama, but it's being uh, extended and, and Blown out, blown out of proportion in, the, in these Trump years. But in 2020, they want to replace the current B-61 bombs, which are, you know, gravity dropped from the planes by gravity with a more advanced B-61-12, which is being developed here in the United States, actually being uh, uh, the pieces being put together in a plant at Kansas City, not far from where I live. They want to replace the bombs that are there with a more sophisticated bomb that has more belts and whistles and is able to be delivered more accurately. So the accuracy of a bomb that, that can destroy so many square miles just doesn't, doesn't it seems to be redundant to be concerned about this. But, but the United States is now in the in a process of spending more than a trillion dollars on what they call the, the modernization and life extension, life extension of nuclear weapons, uh, and the stockpile stewardship, taking care of the uh, aging nuclear weapons in our stockpile, you know, that should be dismantled and gotten rid of, but they're being modernized. The United States is, for the first time in these last years, the life expectancy of an American citizen has is decreasing, and the money for health care, of course, health care in the United States, as people around the world know, is just deplorable, and a trillion dollars for life extension of nuclear weapons, it's beyond obscene. So anyway, in, in 2020, the bombs that are presently in Bushell are supposed to come back to the United States, be replaced by the new B-6112. What we're calling for is for them to be removed, but they're not, you know, they don't need to be replaced. You know, this is, you know, it's time to say no and a time to stop this. Well, after your time in Germany, it was back home and you didn't go straight home. You went to Chicago and there were three days of action, concluding with the July 20 Gaza Freedom Flotilla on the Chicago River. Did you manage to get back for the whole three days of activities? Oh, yes. <laughs> so uh, it was uh, pretty much hitting the ground in Chicago running, coming back from Europe. And, uh, yes, we're looking at uh, nuclear destruction, you know, the possible end of everything. But at the same time, there's all these, uh, all these wars going on right now. The destruction is, is happening now. And uh, 
with Voices for Creative Nonviolence, the group that I that I work with, we had uh, three days of protests. Uh, we were at the um, a march from the Israeli consulate to the Boeing headquarters. Boeing is that uh, seems to be in disarray now, full of scandals. But even when they work well, what they do is many of the weapons being used that are killing people in Gaza right now are produced by Boeing. And many of the uh, parts of the B-61-12 B-61 nuclear bomb that, that uh, could be threatening all of us are being produced by Boeing. So it was appropriate that we went there and had read the names of many of the people who have been killed in the uh, uh, in the attacks on uh, on Gaza, and then we had on Saturday had a flotilla in solidarity with an international movement to sail boats into the uh, through the international waters and to into Gaza, which supposedly is controlled. Uh, those waters should be controlled by the Palestinian Authority, uh, the Palestinian government, but but uh, Israel has a blockade that goes far into international waters. And some of the boats have gotten through, and others have been pirated by the uh, Israeli Navy. And uh, even some of the some of the sailors on this, these flotillas have, have been killed. You know, the uh, siege by you know, stopping, you know, controlling and almost stopping any traffic by road, by land, and then, then, then by sea has resulted in... in uh, you know, a large number of, of deaths, not to mention the actual blasts and bullets, but people are starving and people going without medicine. So in a, in a small way, we, we had uh, some boats and kayaks on the river with banners and signs, people on the shore, and uh, we spent several hours on the Chicago River leaflets and talking with people. Um, the uh, media in Chicago, so far as I know, didn't pay it any attention whatsoever, but for the uh, many people who saw it, I think it made a big impression, and our, uh, just anecdotally, the people that we talked to were very, uh, many people didn't know this was happening at all, and were very uh, supportive when they had the information, and, and thankful for it being brought to their attention. But this is the kind of thing we have to do in this in, in atmosphere today, where the media is so controlled, and our politicians are still so controlled. I take a lot of uh, inspiration from the uh, Extinction Rebellion, the Friday Scrubber. Is, uh, young people are realizing how serious the stakes are and also realizing that uh, politics, normal politics as usual, are not going to be enough to, uh, to make the kind of changes that need to be made for, you know, for the existence of us as a species and in the future. I'm you know, very heartened that... that uh, that so many people, I think so many young people, are beginning beginning to realize this. That it's that uh, it's been said the revolution is not going to be televised, and our legislators are not going to make the changes they that the world needs them to make because sends them letters and people make petitions. It, it needs to be nonviolent and it needs to be uh, persistent. But we can't be following the rules that they put down for us. And we can't be just pandering to the media such as it is. We need to, uh, to build alternatives. And another flotilla is due to 
travel to Gaza next year. Did you have any participants of previous Fatilas at your meeting? Oh, there, there were several um, people who participated who actually had experience with participated in previous flotillas into Gaza. So Kathy Kelly, uh, my colleague with Voices for Crab Nonviolence, was on one of the uh, voyages in the Mediterranean to Gaza. And uh, Colonel Ann Wright, former U.S. military officer and diplomat with the U.S. State Department, who'd been on, on flotillas, several flotillas, and I think is planning on being on the one coming up next year. Uh, she was with us in Chicago. There were several other people who gathered to, to, to be there with us uh, who'd actually been on the boats to Gaza. Yeah, this brought some uh, seriousness to it to learn, and, and draw the connection between what we did in Chicago on the river and what courageous people have done on the, in the Mediterranean. And then it's back home to the farm to look after the chickens and the goats and the vegetables, all those sorts of things, yeah. the mundane things of life. Right, and uh, uh, made a cheese today. And, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> and one of our goats had kids while I was away. It's life. It is. Okay, Brian, well, that's all I've got. Is there any last words you'd like to impart? I just said I'm, I'm, I'm just really grateful for uh, good friends everywhere. And I'm gr- thank you for your interest and all you've done. And, I, and I'm grateful for my time in Europe. Uh, there were people I'd never met before and uh, many old friends that I've known uh, you know, uh, for uh, 30 or 40 years that I was able to spend some time with. And uh, in that beautiful part of the country, and then again in in Chicago to be to be with the uh, people resisting the the war in Gaza. You know that uh, courage is contagious, and we need to get together and communicate with one another and support one another in these terrible times. It's those relationships the difference. And that's Brian Terrell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence talking about his time in Germany, and then up and down the river in Chicago. It's now 5.40. Coming up in a moment, the final part of the interview, which was recorded in Sydney of Professor Emeritus Richard Falk. Three Songs for 3CR on August 3rd brings solos, duos, trios and five choirs to raise funds for Music Sans Frontières. The Oratory, Abbotsford Convent, 7.30pm, Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets at the door or go to www.boite.com.au. The Boit is a 3CR supporter. Today, the second part of the speech by Emeritus Professor Richard Falk, Professor of International Law at Princeton University and former UN Special Rapporteur on Palestine Human Rights. His speech was delivered at the New South Wales Parliament Theatrette titled The Future for Palestine, BDS and International Law and Beyond. The overriding legal norm that's relevant is this norm of self-determination and the self-determination of the people that are resident in the society. So 
What I believe is the current stage of the struggle is one in which the efforts by governments and the UN have clearly failed. They've failed because of a number of reasons. One reason is that Israel has the geopolitical backing of the U.S. and to some extent Western Europe, and that that allows it to avoid the kinds of political and moral pressures that have been exerted on it. The further reason is this sense of liberal guilt about the Holocaust that initially clouded the eyes of those that were victorious in World War II to the injustice being done to the Palestinian people. You can't justify the injustice to one people by transferring it to another people. So you can't, you can't re reproduce injustice through this kind of liberal effort to overcome the guilt of not having helped uh, the Jewish population during the rise of Hitler and uh, the Nazi period. And so that historical grounding of the disregard of Palestinian basic rights is part of what allowed this original sin to eventuate in the establishment of a Jewish expanding state. And Israel has made clear time and time again that when it's offered a political compromise, it's not interested. The Arab Initiative of 2002 was a very forthcoming offer not only to create a, a political compromise within Palestine, but to ensure Israel that it would have normal relations with the Arab world. It was an opening that if Israel was interested in a political compromise, it would have gladly accepted or at least explored. It never even explored that initiative. And so what I think is clear at this point is that these efforts to solve the problem from above, either from the intergovernmental diplomacy or by the UN, uh, have failed. And that the, this means that the responsibility and opportunity to affect a just outcome in Palestine is situated more clearly than ever before in the people of the world, the peoples of the world. The outcome depends on the mobilization of civil society globally. And that's why BDS is so central because it's a way that's been, has a proven history of having been effective in overcoming what appeared to be an impossible task. I was in South Africa not long before uh, Nelson Mandela was released. And one of the things that was evident there on all sides of the conflict, I had the opportunity because I was an official observer of a political trial to talk to a wide spectrum of South Africans. And what they all agreed about was 
that the future would either be a bloody struggle or a permanent perpetuation of the apartheid regime. No one, literally no one, saw the possibility that the Africana elite would change course. And as I said earlier, they changed course because they recalculated their interests, believed correctly, I think, that they were be would be better off abandoning apartheid than perpetuating it and confronting indefinite resistance and uh, opposition, which they would have to confront. When you deny the spirit of equality, which is this idea of inalienable rights that I started with, you inevitably are pushed toward a violent form of repression. And that pushes the other side toward resistance and the cycle continues. And the most you can hope for are ceasefires, not sustainable peace. And if you seek sustainable peace for these two peoples, it has to be based on the spirit of equality. And that's never been at the core of the international diplomacy because the international diplomacy was always tilted toward security for Israel. And when you make that without talking about security for the Palestinians, what you're really doing, you're confronting what social scientists call the security dilemma. That is, by improving your security, you make others insecure. And that was the essence of all of these uh, one-sided diplomatic efforts that they focused on what were the conditions of achieving Israeli security in the event that a Palestinian state emerged. And what that entailed was this permanent subjugation and insecurity of the Palestinian people. So the necessity of a peace based on the spirit of equality. That will be the only way of a, achieving a sustained peace. And as Edward Said and others, other Palestinians have pointed out, that kind of sustainable peace needs to also have some kind of acceptance of the inevitability of historical change that uh, the imposition of the Jewish Zionist project may have been and was flawed from its outset, but you have a situation that has emerged where there needs to be some kind of accommodation between the two peoples in order to have a sustained peace. But that accommodation must be based on this idea of equality, not hierarchy. All of the peace initiatives from above have been based on keeping the Israelis above the Palestinians and basically creating a situation of permanent subjugation. And our assessment of the apartheid structure was pertaining pertain to the whole of the 
Palestinian population, including the refugees, that the notion that Israel could only have its political dream of being a Jewish state and a democratic state by engaging from the outset in ethnic cleansing, to put it politely, I suppose. In other words, you could not have a democratic Israel without having the Nakba, the expulsion of up to 750,000 Palestinians, which gave a demographic majority to Israel. I said earlier that the first anxiety of Israel at the present time is losing the legitimacy war. But the second anxiety is the demographic bomb, the notion that Israel can't be a single victorious uh, state in this struggle and keep its credential of being at least an electoral democracy. That's been a puzzle. Let me uh, bring these remarks to a close by referring briefly to the deal of the century, which I call the fraud of the century. But it, first of all, it doesn't aim to achieve an agreement. It aims at coercing Palestinian political surrender and offering in exchange for that surrender some kind of economic enhancement of Palestinian life. It's surprising to me that in most of the discussion, it hasn't been properly observed that the Trump presidency has engaged in a series of steps that were not designed to create an atmosphere of accommodation, but were designed to convey to the Palestinians that they are supporting a lost cause and that they'd be better off giving up and taking, uh, having a, a somewhat better material life than they presently have. That idea of being a lost cause was typified by moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, by cutting off the funding for UNRWA in the occupied territories, by justifying uh, Netanyahu's moves toward annexing uh, settlements as part of Israeli sovereign territory, and then culminating in the uh, support for the annexation of the Golan Heights in Syria, that, uh, that is Syrian territory. And a, a, a blatant violation of one of the cardinal principles of international law that emerged from World War II, namely that you can't acquire territory by the use of force. See, and a complete disregard of that. The point I'm making about what preceded this recent Bahrain conference, the economic dimensions of the Trump initiative, was a series of steps that were designed to convey something more than what pre previous American presidents had done. They had been partisan. There's no question they were leaning toward the Israeli side. And as I said earlier, their emphasis on 
security for Israel only was uh, decisive in making uh, impossible demands of the Palestinians in the context of the so-called peace process and the Oslo diplomacy. This way of conceiving of the conflict was a very uh, deep distortion that now is being played out as saying diplomacy has failed. The partisanship of the past did not produce the one-sided outcome that the U.S. and Israel were seeking. So this is a way of uh, shifting from partisanship to partnership in the promotion of an Israeli outcome that is not a diplomatic compromise but is a political victory. And the, uh, the thinking for this comes from Zionist uh, think tank, the Middle East Forum, Daniel Pipes, whose name you may know, had this idea of the Victory Caucus. And he basically said, diplomacy has been tried, it's failed, we have to do something else, and the something else is that wars end when one side wins and the other side loses. So we have to make the Palestinians understand that they've lost. And to make them understand that they've lost, we have to put more coercion, make them more miserable, create a situation of sufficient political desperation that they will uh, surrender. That's really the Kushner-Trump approach to quote-unquote peace and prosperity. And, uh, of course, it involves... Uh, it's sort of an Orwellian twist on these uh, fine words. So let me end by saying that I think there is hope for a just solution. And that hope comes from the way other struggles of this sort have eventually ended. And it depends on the continued perseverance of the Palestinian people which has been manifest in the Great March of Return, this quite extraordinary nonviolent effort to express Palestinian grievances over the past more than a year now, successive Fridays. That expression of robust resistance combined with this growing global solidarity movement as epitomized by the BDS campaign is what I regard as the path to, to Palestinian victory in this long struggle. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the second part of this speech at the New South Wales Parliament Theatrette on the 4th of July by Emeritus Professor Richard Fogg. That's it for me today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 but do stay tuned for Done by Law. Bye for now.